Naval College, Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania. Monday afternoon, December 13, 1971. Bible 324, Biblical Archaeology, studying Dr. Blake book, Archaeology and the New Testament, a chapter on Archaeology and the Apocalypse, beginning at Philbus question number 116 concerning the site of the city of Sardis. All right, I think we finished with uh, 113 and noted the uh, matter of Satan's seat mentioned in the letter to the church at uh, Pergamum. And this is probably uh, something connected with the order of Zeus you recall in question 114, what was the title given to Zeus by uh, people who were not Christians that would be especially offensive to the Christian population of that city? Dancing, what do they call Zeus? Zeus the Savior, Zeus Sotar, Zeus the Savior. And this would be, the pagans have had to give us a second thought, but to the Christians this would be very objectionable and offensive. Now, 115, archaeological investigation or excavation on the sites of Thyatira, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Briefly, how much has been done in those three places? Okay. Very little. And this is still waiting to be done. There's a lot of work to be done, and um, it's barely been done. Um, or surveyed even. What could be found there, no doubt, would be very worthwhile. And all this takes is manpower and money and uh, permits from the Turkish government. Three things. All of them, of course, necessary. But uh, this would lead to the real excavation of these places. It may be done someday. Now then, started. When was serious archaeological work commenced at the site of Sardis, and when was it abandoned? And this is uh, 116, Sardis, uh, 1910, and when was it abandoned? When was the baby? 1914. Can you think of any reason why they would abandon it in 1914? <laughs> Well, what's happened in four years from but this was the outbreak of World War One, not conducive to archaeology. And the Turkey, of course, was on the side of the Germans in World War One, and the England and France and later America were on the other side, and this did not lead to a total and complete love peace between these two sides on the side of the Sardis or any other of these places. A little note there, and Sarkoff says the uh, very large uh, steel crane that was used for lifting large blocks of stone and was abandoned there and war broke out in 1914. This would probably be very expensive to pack and ship anywhere. It had probably been put together from parts on the spot. And uh, so it was just left there, and he said this is contributing its share to the wilderness that started. Now, is it still lying in, uh, let's say, second-degree ruin like that or not? 
ไปหกแน่แน่ทีเกิดความสุขสบายแน่แน่เขาเริ่มทำงานจะทำสิ่งนี้ได้ทำยังไงจึงได้เดียวว่าจะรักที่เขาเริ่มทำงานแต่ใช่แล้วก็ยังเสียวจิตวิทย์เรื่องนั้นจนในทัวร์ไปเฟ้นวิทย์เรื่องที่คุณจะเห็นในเรื่องที่คุณจะเห็นในเรื่องที่คุณจะเห็นในเรื่องที่คุณจะเห็นในเรื่องที่คุณจะเห็นในเรื่องที่คุณจะเห็นในเรื่องที่คุณจะเห็นในเรื่องที่คุณจะเห็นในเรื่องที่คุณจะเห็นในเรื่องที่คุณจะเห็นในเรื่องที่คุณจะเห็นในเรื่องที่คุณจะเห็นในเรื่องที่คุณจะเห็นในเรื่องที่คุณจะเห็นในเรื่องที่คุณจะเห็นในเรื่องที่คุณจะเห็นในเรื่องที่คุณจะเห็นในเรื่องที่คุณจะเห็นในเรื่องที่คุณจะเห็นในเรื่องที่คุณจะเห็นในเรื่องที่คุณจะเห็นในเรื่องที่คุณจะเห็นในเรื่องที่คุณจะเห็นในเรื่องที่คุณจะเห็นในเรื่องเ
And Bancroft suggests that this really means Rome. The actual literal city of Babylon was pretty well in ruins before the book of Revelation was written. So it could hardly mean the literal Babylon on the Euphrates. And it is more likely it means something else. Now, some have thought this is the literal Babylon rebuilt at some future time. Of course, you can't prove that's impossible. The student gave me a clipping from a Sunday paper from Pittsburgh about the, the rebuilding of the Tower of Babel by the Republic of Iraq as a tourist attraction to draw American tourists and their money. Now, I showed a picture on this thing of one of these ziggurats, of which uh, about 20 or two dozen maybe have been discovered in various states of real nation, the one at Earth being uh, the best preserved, and it also the deal of worse for work. But the Tower of Babel, mentioned in the early part of Genesis, chapter 11, is it? Uh, this could not be the same as any of these ziggurats. It was never finished. The ziggurats were finished, there were religious uh, projects, the, uh, each of them had been, in early times, a, a little temple on top where the god or gods of that particular city were worshipped, that earth was Manar, Mindal, the moon god, and the Mrs. Moon god. They worshipped on the top of that ziggurat, this was like the pyramid of Egypt, only not so big. And the Tower of Babel was a secular, or an anti-religious project that was uh, motivated by real power payments in Genesis, uh, motivated by a desire for fame, or to make us a name, and to prevent scattering, in other words, the center of human unity, and in uh, contravention of God's plan that people should move to the habitable world and inhabit it, just to keep the people together, and make a center of power that way, and of course there was some big talk connected with it, but it still is the power that will reach out of heaven. They never got it that high. And they gave it up before they got it very high. It was, it was broken. Now, uh, uh, it is possible that one of these bigger acts, falsely called the Tower of Babel, will be rebuilt as an American tourist attraction. Nobody will work suckers than Americans for things like this. And we'll pay their money for all sorts of food. And this is possible. However, it is unlikely, in my opinion, that the description in Revelation 18 of the fall of Babylon refers to a literal Babylon on the Euphrates uh, restored at some future time, although I admit it might. And the idea here is, uh, according to Blakeloff, that this stands for wrong. It was, in a way, you could say that Babylon of that day, as Babylon was the great enemy of God's people in the Old Testament, so wrong was in the time when the book of Revelation was written. This does not refer, of course, to Rome after it had been Christianized, but before pagan Rome, under the pagan Roman Empire, about the year 100, when the book of Revelation was written. And it even speaks in one or two places in the book of Revelation about it being founded on seven hills. This is almost a giveaway. The city of Rome, of course, was founded on seven hills. And this chapter in, in the, the grand style, 
and cataclysmic oratory describes the utter downfall of Babylon that had been so gorged with luxury and wealth and splendor, and uh, had also, we read here, uh, drunk the blood of the saints, and it's the fall. Now, of course, this did come true. Uh, Rome today is not the same city. Rome was sacked by the Goths, was it? The Vandals, that's right, and the city well destroyed. Just about 400 AD, something like that. And then, then later we felt the run through the Middle Ages was a very small place compared to so many of the men in this America. No, and uh, it would be wrong not just to ask you. But uh, I think Foster takes it this way that. Um, this speaks of the power and splendors of anti-Christian wealth and so forth at any time in history. And Rome is one, Rome, the pagan Rome is one example of this, which was particularly vivid and well-known to the people at the time when Revelation was written. Now, maybe it'd be in New York today or, or someplace. But uh, this was this was what they would think of the original readers when they would read this. Now you realize the book of Revelation is written in a kind of a code, and you have to be sort of in on the code to get this. The book that uh, brings this out the most clearly that I know of is Albertus Peters, the Irish the Lamb, the Woman, and the Dragon. Now Peters was a missionary in Japan, and then he retired and became professor of Bible at Hope College in Michigan when finally died not too long ago. And he believed in the preterist interpretation that most of this was fulfilled in the early centuries or soon after his written, which I don't agree with. But one thing he brings out very strikingly is that Revelation is he calls it God's cartoon book, written in a code, and you had to be on the on the end to know what this code was. To get the idea, uh, the idea of this being that um, Christians were being persecuted, their scriptures were being confiscated, they were being thrown to the lions, and any book that mentions the Roman persecuting power in plain Latin, the Greek, would be a giveaway that would only get them in worse trouble. So here's a book that deals in dragons with seven heads and ten horns and all sorts of things like this, and any Roman official that would see this would say, well, obviously written by a psychopath. And uh, we figure it didn't uh, mean a thing, it would be meaningless to them, but the Christians would know. And uh, Peter illustrates this, he says that really Christians knew what these things meant. Uh, here he said, to illustrate, for example, suppose that uh, New York City goes back to uh, brush and forest, like it was when the Dutch bought it from the Indians for $24 or something sum. And a thousand years later, archaeologists come and dig up New York City. And they find a vault underneath the Empire State Building, a Rockefeller Center, and open this up, and inside is the American flag and the Constitution of the United States and the directory of the city and the telephone book. And among other things, a newspaper. And on this newspaper, there are two pictures on the front page. One is an elephant, three pictures. One is an elephant 
One is a donkey and one is uh, a tiger. So the uh, archaeologist, if he's a literalist, he says, look, a thousand years ago New York City was a dense jungle uh, formed about by uh, wild animals, including donkeys, tigers, and elephants. Uh, obviously, this picture. But the truth would be if there was a political campaign going on, and the donkey is a uh, emblem of the Democrat Party, the elephant of the Republican, and the tiger is uh, the old-time political machine in the Tammany Hall of New York City. So that the person who would take tiger to be tiger would miss the vote, which stands for something quite different. And similarly in Revelation, when you read about um, a great red dragon, Whatever this means, it doesn't mean a great red dragon. And so on with the rest of these things. And you should realize this is typical of apocalyptic literature, and especially of the apocalypse or the book of Revelation, to deal in this kind of symbol. These, uh, let's say, uh, kept the knowledge of what it was about from those who had no right to it and would only use it for, for bad purposes against the Christians. And at the same time, it gave the needed guidance and information and comfort to the Christians who had the key by which they could figure out what all these things meant. Now, it is very tantalizing uh, uh, to us to realize that the Christians of 100 A.D. almost certainly knew something about some of these things that we don't know, and that we rack our brains to figure out, and probably the humblest Christian in Rome um, they had the humblest and lowliest job knew what those different things meant. And similarly with some other places in the New Testament. Uh, Paul speaks in Thessalonians of the future antichrist and man of sin and says that uh, he can't be manifested yet. He who let us will let. That is, he who restrains will restrain until he be taken out of the way. You know what that means, Mr. Brown? For sure? No, I don't either. And some think it means the Holy Spirit, and others think it means the the uh, power of the Roman Empire, which um, at first protected Christianity and then later attacked it, you see. And uh, undoubtedly, the Thessalonian Christians knew what that meant, and we don't. This is, uh, this is very uh, frustrating to us today to think that those people knew it, and now it's been lost in them, and we don't know. Now, in Revelation here, uh, he illustrates this taking chapter, if we may take this as referring, let's say, first of all, to the pagan Roman Empire, and Rome, its glittering and wealthy, luxury-ridden capital, with its vices and its wickedness and its oppression of Christianity, as what this was first written about. And then, hold it isn't limited to that. This applies every time down through history where there is a similar power that um, has similar characteristics and does similar things, like the concentric circles in the pond that I was speaking about last time. Now, Austria has been thoroughly excavated and is found to be, uh, to have been a really busy seaport. Ships from all over the Mediterranean and even out in the Atlantic came and unloaded there, and then um, some of the warehouses run stand there, the building's empty and unused, but uh, two stories and three stories high. You can see pictures of these in some books. And also remains the tenement block, and you know that some of these tenements in which uh, 
poorer people were housed, there's six and more stories high. Surely you have to climb some stairs. Speaks in in the act level about Torah the saw Eutychus fell out of the third story, fell asleep in the during the third. And Paul was preaching long after midnight, it's not surprising this guy fell asleep, he probably was had all day before. Found to the ground. Third story. But they made buildings many stories higher than that. Cheaper the many the more stories you have, the cheaper it is per story, because one roof covers them all. And uh, you don't have to have a separate roof for each one. Now today, no school buildings are being made two or more stories. Too much better. They build school buildings today one story. This is more expensive. You have to have a roof for the one story, but you can get the kids out quicker if there's a fire. Do you know of any two-story school buildings being built today? I don't think it's done. I don't think the authorities will approve building of that kind of school. We have one. This is at the Emperor of the New College. And there's one above this yet. Believe it or not. All right. Now, um, that's the Austria. Chapter 13 is the most scary chapter in the book of Revelation, and this we should take a look at. It isn't very long, 18 verses. This describes two beasts. Now, uh, the Greek word for beast here is not the ordinary word for animal, which would be zoon, from which we get zoology. And so zoa, Z-O-A, for more than one, meaning a living creature. But this word is therion, T-H-E-R-I-O-N, which means a wild beast. A man-eating tiger is a therion. It's also a zoon, but that's not what you ordinarily call it. a ferocious wild beast. And there are two. One of these comes out of the sea, and the other one comes out of the land. And uh, there's, of course, all sorts of debate as to exactly what this chapter means, but I'll tell you what the, most people think it means, what I think it means. This is the future in my opinion, not yet fulfilled, or at least not yet fully fulfilled, and describes a world dictator who will bitterly persecute Christianity, the first beast, a political figure rising out of the sea. Now, the sea in the Bible is often a, a symbol for the nations of the world. The sea is never at rest. It's always in motion. And this is true of the nations of the world. You can't think back on a time when international affairs were national quest. They never are for very long. And the sea is a troubled sea that cannot rest. It stands in the Bible many times, Old Testament knew, for the human powers or nations of the world. So this fellow is a political figure who arises from the nations of the world, and he gets world dominion. We have a warless world issue here. Who's able to make war with the beast? Nobody. It's world peace. For the first time in history, almost, you could say, pretty nearly, that it's the peace of a cemetery or the peace of a prison. And he is aided by the second beast who comes out of the earth, not out of the sea. This is taken, therefore, to mean from the cultural and religious aspects of humanity. So the first beast is a political figure, Let's say, and I don't think Adolf Hitler measures up to this at all, but just, just taking his illustration, he was a political dictator. And the second beast, also called later in Revelation, the false prophet, in, in God, 
So what Shannon was with the first beast and just uh, sort of tears to him and uh, gets everybody uh, propagandized and brainwashed to do what the first beast wants is a religious and cultural figure. Now about everybody has been nominated to be this second beast. The Pope, the World Council of Churches, the National Council of Churches, and you name it. I don't think any of these, I think this is future, and it will be understood by our Christians when the time comes, but it hasn't come yet. But at any rate, the first beast, aided by the religious and cultural propaganda of the second beast, that controls the human race. And this is implemented by his being worshipped. Now here is the worship of a man. He is said specifically to be a man in the last verse of this chapter. The number is the number of a man. Therefore, this is not some uh, age-long institution or tendency. It's, it's a human, a person. Amen. And he is worshipped as if he were God and claims for himself divine honor. This puts Christians, of course, terribly on the spot. They have to choose between, let's say, uh, giving idolatrous devotion to a mere man and a wicked man at that, and being faithful to Christ and to their conscience. And this is enforced by a rigid economic boycott. He gives everybody a mark in their forehead or in their right hand. The right hand is a symbol of physical work, activity. The forehead is a symbol of brain work. And uh, anybody that doesn't have the mark of the wild beast cannot buy herself. So here's a rigid economic work, right? You cannot have a job, you can't buy, you can't sell, how can you live? If you live in East Berlin, you can risk your life to try to get to West Berlin and maybe get shot or maybe make it and get to freedom. So what do you do when the whole world is in East Berlin? Where do you place it? Got to go to the moon when you can't even see it. And so this is a terrible condition for Christians who cannot buy or sell, in other words, living is impossible for them without compromising with the beast, and many, no doubt, will be slain at this, uh, at this time in the world's history, when this will be uh, before the Lord's return, but I don't know when. And finally, uh, he is destroyed, as you see later in the book of Revelation, at the second coming of Christ, so that uh, his grandiose plan and all his success finally just tumbles in ruins, and there's no success. Now, um, that seems to be the main symbolism here. A political figure and a religious figure working in cahoots, and uh, Christianity is their victim. As long as we're only dealing with the meaning of this, we can be on fairly solid ground. When you attempt to identify the fulfillment, then you begin to be speculated on this holy hazardous to do this. Nearly everybody in history, the bad boys of history, has been nominated to be the first beast of Revelation 13. You name them, and they've been nominated to this. Napoleon was one, Genghis Khan was another. And uh, various others down the line, these people who have um, sort of drenched the world in blood to satisfy their ambitions. Nobody has ever gotten world dominion completely, although some have, of course, accepted it. Now, what is the remaining mystery here? concerning this number at the end of 666, 600, 3, 4, and 6. And the first place is 666, the correct number here, according to the Greek manuscript. 
Huh? I'm talking. Well, all right. This is what they claim that um, this this hundred and forty-four thousand stands for the redeemed, and it means the Jehovah's Witnesses. Now, in that place, we could spend the rest of the semester on the Book of Revelation. In that place where that's given, it lists the tribes, and there never was such a listing of the tribes of Israel as that anywhere else in the Bible. The tribe of Dan is omitted. The tribe of Joseph is included. And then Ephraim, who is uh, one of the sons of Joseph, also included. So it's, uh, uh, it doesn't fit the ordinary historical listing of the tribes at all. Dr. Stonehouse, who is now dead at Westminster Seminary, in whom I studied Revelation, said, All right, the Holy Spirit ran a flag up on the flagpole here with this listing of the tribes. Be careful. Figurative use of words ahead. Don't take it literally. If it were intended to be taken literally, it would list the tribes of Israel straight. But here's an omission and a, an overlap and a duplication, and uh, this is uh, an indication that this has something other than the literal meaning. Now, after that, in that same vision, it says, I saw a great multitude whom no man could number, having white robes and so forth, stood before the throne of God and the Lamb, and so on. And uh, this is taken to mean first the 144,000, the redeemed or elect of God, are a very great number known to God, a definite number, will finally be redeemed and get to eternal glory. And the other part, where it says a great multitude, that the redeemed are not going to be a small number. When you take, when the roll is called up yonder and it's all finished, it's going to be a very great number. It says past power to count. This is including, no doubt, uh, the uh, thousands of millions that have died in infancy from all over the world, as well as a great number of older people. So that the one part you see about the 12,000, 12,000, 12,000, this would indicate it is a specific number known to God. The other part would mean it is a very great number that when finally the returns are all in, the redeemed are not going to be an insignificant few, but a very great number. Doesn't look like it when you look at the Beaver Valley today, but uh, you should have a longer range view, both in the past and the present and the future. Now then, 666 could be uh, one short of 777, as he points out. 7 is the number of perfection, and 3 is the number of divinity, and 777 would be the number of divine perfection. Triple seven and six 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 falling one short on every count would be the number of man in distinction from God. Six six six, the number of man, and it says there it is the number of a man. You could take this to be the number of man. It's an indefinite article. Now, who that has studied Greek knows does Greek have an indefinite article like A or N. It does So you have to supply it. I think it means a man, but uh, maybe not. Maybe it means man as such here. The number of men. If this beast will be a particular person, but 666 is the number of man in rebellion against God as distinguished from deity. Now, uh, whatever you think about that, that at least makes sense. It gives a meaningful understanding of this mysterious number. Isn't it uh, really frustrating to think that the Christians of Ephesus and so forth must have known what this 666 stood for, and we have 
than what had happened when Jeremiah was living. You see, and this is the nature of many prophecies like this. And uh, so it is only when the fulfillment is dawning on us that our Christians can really get the point of some of these things and know what they are. And uh, the Christian who is uh, sluggish and asleep and not living close to God and doesn't pray and doesn't read the Bible, he's going to be taken like a thief in the night and uh, he's going to get saved by skin of his teeth uh, or something similar. And uh, so uh, now with regard to this number, Laycock uh, says this is a plausible if uncertain interpretation of this number of man as short of divinity on every count. All that man does and all that he is is short of what God is and what God wants and plans. Now, he says there's room yet for conjecture and ingenuity. After all, the writer warns his readers, behold, here is wisdom. Perhaps some papyrus scrap still undiscovered or undeciphered some inscription under a Turkish doorstep or embedded in a wall contains an answer to John's cryptogram. Uh, you think it's likely, Mr. Dennison, that one will be found? Well, it's not impossible, though. This could be. You know, um, at the ruins of Nineveh, they found uh, many large inscriptions in cuneiform, and one of those had a piece about as big as a more prominent man missing. And more than a dozen years later, archaeologists went back there looking in the ruins of this uh, royal palace and library and found the missing piece that fitted in among the tons of debris. Uh, truth is indeed stranger than fiction sometimes. And uh, this has happened. Now, Hunger, uh, uh, Blakelock says here in 126, much of the imagery is of Old Testament origin. The book of Revelation is simply saturated with allusions to the Old Testament. And John, who wrote this, inspired by the Holy Spirit, of course, but still, his name was still John. He was a man who, who was very thoroughly at home in the Old Testament scriptures. And you can see this on almost any page or place that you look in the book of Revelation. Now, uh, 127, who besides scholars from Western lands are carrying on archaeological investigation in Bible lands today? Used to be in all the archaeologists were American, British, French, German, and that's about it. Who's doing it today in some of these countries? Well, the local people. Nearly every one of these Near Eastern countries today has a stringent and strict law about antiquity. You don't get to turn over a stone as big as a dollar bill, hardly, without getting a permit. And uh, this is strictly regulated by law. You have to, before you can get a permit to dig, you have to prove who you are and what your credentials are and that you have the staff to do it and do it right and the money to finish it. This is not easy to come by. And then, when you're through, somebody from Ankara or Cairo or whatever country it is, you know, the capital will come and he'll pick over everything that you found that's laid out in a big tent and take the best of it all and put it in the National Museum of this country. 
You're allowed to take home photographs of it, and if there are any cracked ones or busted ones or duplicates, you can have those for your trouble of digging the whole thing up. But um, the local people get it all. Now, archaeologists don't mind this a bit, because what they're looking for is knowledge, and once they've seen a thing and recorded it and measured it, waited, photographed it, why, that's what they need. And on the other hand, the people who give money for archaeology, they want things that they can to bring us in show. But archaeology is no longer a Western preserve, as Blake Lodge here informs us. And the last question on this chapter, the Apocalypse is a document of early church history, and as such will give more of its primary meaning as spade and cowl bring to clearer light the ways of thought and action in the first century. Now that's true if you put a yes but in front of it. What does this require for this to be really done? Well, this requires world peace. And uh, you cannot do it very well if there's a war going on. And uh, let's hope and pray that the storm clouds over the Near and Middle East today will dissipate in the providence of God. Not only for the sake of archaeology, this is really uh, my concern, but for the sake of the world and of the people of those countries. Would you call the present-day relations of Israel and Egypt a love feast? Well, it's pretty bad. And India and Pakistan, I thought we were going to be neutral in this, and here they're holding riots in uh, New Delhi against the United States. And why? Because we're not giving them munitions to fight the Pakistanis with. So riots against the United States. I'd be very glad to find something wrong somewhere in the world that Uncle Sam couldn't be blamed for. I think, of course, the volcanic eruptions and tidal waves are pretty safe, maybe, but uh, anything else, you don't know who to blame it on, blame it on the United States. We're, we're the type of people to blame things on. <laughs>